Hello. <clears throat> Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm really good. Good. What's up? You're done with King Neptune, I hear. Well, my King for Neptune. For now. For now. Right. Right. That's right. That's right. So I'm I'm back to uh, I'm back to my normal self. Okay. Um, I cut off my King Neptune beard, and everybody said that I looked younger, just as you predicted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so you um, have a little bit of a mustache, it seems, or a full mustache. I do. Yeah, I do. I do. It's a little bit of an RAF mustache that doesn't go with my long hair. And now everyone in, that's close to me is saying, "Why don't you cut your hair too?" So we'll see how that goes. Maybe I will. <laughs> An RAF uh, mustache, I believe, stands for Royal Air Force. Correct. Okay. Can you detail Correct. what exactly that is for the listeners? Well, you know, the Royal Air Force maintained a kind of rakishness. Uh, all uh, pilots, all uh, combat pilots in World War One were very rakish. It was still a very exotic and exciting kind of posh activity to be a to be a fighter pilot and they all had little cool little mustaches because they were very young right they were in their early 20s late teens even mm-hmm. and so they they couldn't grow big fat mustaches they could only grow little ones because because they were young men and then in world war ii uh the brits maintained a sort of rakishness little mustachey silk scarf style of combat pilot the usa pilots got more pappy boeington style more you know corn-fed iowa Mm -hmm. good old boy type of um style but the you know the brits still had this sort of uh swagger mustache based swagger and then after korea a mustache was not really being in uniform in the U.S. Air Force. I'm not exactly sure what the protocol was, but I don't think you could wear a mustache. Certainly not a big bushy mustache, but I don't even think you could wear a little little zippy mustache. So mm-hmm. the U.S. Air Force wanted you to be, they institutionalized clean cut Iowa kid. And so now if you want to wear a little mustache, you really only have like British pilots from 80 years ago to model yourself on. Right. And for somebody like you or me who can grow a full mustache, Mm -hmm. the RAFing of it involves sort of trimming it so that it kind of looks like almost like Dan's first mustache. You know, right? Sure. You cut the tops down. You make it kind of not all the way to an Errol Flynn, but like a, you know, you make it you make it a little bit smaller to approximate that sort of um, close style. Right. So that's where I'm at right now. But my hair is just an unruly mop. So that's not very RAF. That's not very close close cut. So I'm gonna have to do something else. I'm gonna have to do something about it. Would you, you you cut it yourself if I remember right? Yeah, for a while I was going to a friend who was like a bona fide hairstylist, um, just because I because I imagined I was trying to grow it out and I wanted some help with it. But 
That was all for King Neptune. Grow the hair, grow the beard. Looked like a sea monster. <laughs> was that the goal to look like yeah. it? <laughs> that was my goal initially. I mean, King Neptune <laughs> evolved over time. Right, sure. You know, at first I had I had pretty noble aspirations, and then as time went on, I was I was uh, I was working on the fly because it was ninety five degrees here, and that's hot. I mean, you're not used to that kind of heat. That's not not used to it. And when they asked me to be King Neptune, it was back in March when everything was still like normal temperatured. So I was like, oh, well, I'll just build a King Neptune outfit out of wool and <laughs> sandpaper. So wait a minute. It's on you to build the outfit? They don't even provide you with an outfit? No. How no, is there don't. any standardization then? There is none. There is none. That's one of the great things about the King Neptune job for me was that there was no really established way of doing it. I think that last year, from what I understand, the King Neptune uh, never spoke a word. Really? And it was the queen, Queen Alcyone, who did all the speaking at public events. What, did he just stand around? Stood there with a smile on his face wearing the crown, and then I think he used the sword to knight people. See, that's a man who's full of regret. Well, he. I think he... he didn't want to have to say anything. And uh, this year, my queen Alcyon and I had a huddle at the first event. And she said, not even knowing me, not knowing anything about me, she said, uh, what if I wield the sword and you do the talking? You read the script, I'll wield the sword. And I said, <laughs> you know what? You have come to the right place. <laughs> And, uh, so we had a great division of labor. I like, uh, I like using the microphone. She enjoyed wielding the sword and we were, we were a good partnership. Yeah, sure. But, so is it yeah, just that, that the, the events are over that you get a bit of a break from them or are you sort of just, you've, you've hit a max and you're, there's not going to be a no show. No, 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 no. I really enjoyed it. And Seafair is actually a festival that although it goes year year round it is concentrated in the space of one week where there are boat races and the blue angels are here and and uh it's fleet week and it's it's uh you know it's a whole cluster of events right and that all ended on sunday and now i think if i had no further interest maybe they would send me an email at christmas time and say will you come to the parade of ships because at christmas we we have a big parade of boats that are all decorated with lights and the boats kind of parade around the city and sometimes they're over here and sometimes they're over there and you can kind of go watch these it's it's kind of a flotilla like it really is a bunch of boats hmm. it's beautiful to see they go through the locks they come onto the lake they go out in the water and they would i think they'll send me an email saying do you want to come to the parade of boats but if i said no nobody would be sad but i think they're not prepared for how much I'm going to contact them and say, hey, I've got an idea. Why sure. doesn't King Neptune go? I mean, I've got the sash, Dan. They can't take the sash away. <laughs> That's I've never heard a truer statement. Yeah. So I had a great time doing King Neptune. And then um, also, you know, last week you and I talked about. Uh, I said, like, that I what that I didn't want to play shows. 
particularly, but I would if somebody made an offer that was uh, like Don Corleone style. Right. An offer I couldn't refuse. And, uh, and then a person contacted me and said, uh, will you play my birthday party? And I said, I don't know if you listened all the way down in the podcast, but I said that it was a, you know, it was a situation where I, it's not a thing I want to do. You know, I'm afraid now that I've opened up a Pandora's box here and people <laughs> are going to sure. say, oh, John's going to play shows. Okay. Well, you know, will you play my party? And, uh, I'm getting the impression that you said yes. Well, so they, they, you know, they said, what's your, what's your, uh, fuck you price. Right. And I said, look, plumbers submit bids. Musicians consider offers. Oh, right. Sure. And, uh, and then, uh, they made me an offer and I was like, yeah, I'll play your birthday party for that. <laughs> and so, so, uh, so, you know, I'm lining up gigs. Right now and uh and that's a surprise didn't occur to me you know there's this whole culture of like touring around playing house shows mm-hmm. and i've i've gone with friends that do it and i and it seems fun and it's better it seems better than touring clubs because so much of the rigmarole is like dealt with it's done it's you know it's not even you don't even have to think about it you don't show up and load in and sound check and wait around for five hours mm-hmm. you don't play it you don't go on stage at eleven thirty to a dwindling drunk crowd you know you show up the audience is already there they've already paid for the tickets you say hey everyone you open your guitar case pull out your guitar start playing you play for 45 minutes or an hour and then you sit there and sit at a table and sell your stuff for another 30 minutes and then you're good then you're done i mean the whole thing you can be you can be done in two hours you can start at seven and be done at nine i mean it's it's brilliant but i've just never undertaken a house show tour because it does involve what we were talking about before which is a kind of infrastructure right Somebody's got to book this tour. Somebody's got to consider all these people that are like, I want a house show at my house. I live in a house with soggy floors that can hold like 11 people and I have five dogs. Like somebody has to vet that. (laughs) Yeah. Say, my friend, I understand that you want this, but you are not suitable for it. And then all the business of people have to pay in advance and you have to collect that money somehow and know the lists and all that stuff. Sure. I'm terrible, terrible at all that. And so it's just like that would never happen. But this kind of thing where it's like every once in a while somebody, and I, you know, and I hate to say to people like, Oh, we don't have a lot of money, but we want you to come play. And that is, that's crime. Why do only rich people get nice things? And it's like, well, yeah, I see what you're saying, but also like I'm, you're asking me to get out of bed and go a long distance to you. And I have all these mouths to feed. Well, we, we, I don't know if you have been, uh, 
checking the email, but I remember last episode you said, I don't get any of the email, Dan. So what I did is I went in and made a special new email account with a little list thing so that any email that goes to it goes to both of us. And I am getting it now. I and thought, it's very I thought exciting. You, you might be. And I didn't know if um, there were two things that came in that I, I don't know if we need to do this on the show uh, or yeah. not. One of them is that there's a helper who wants, wants to be your helper. So I mean, helpers have contacted me across a variety of social media platforms. Okay, okay. They've emailed me through you. Right. They have contacted me through Instagram. Oh, they right. Have e- they have emailed me directly through or, or through the Long Winters site. Uh-huh. And so yeah, already I have a little bit, and they're all, every single person who has emailed me is amazing. Yeah, and, that's great. And, yeah, and, and I think of the four people – Fully three of them live elsewhere and have said, look, I live in, you know, San Francisco, for instance, or Los Angeles. Right. And, uh, I, and I'm not at liberty to move, but I think I can do a lot of these things for you, uh, remotely. Right. And then, uh, a fifth thing was a company that is a, like a, a facilitation company, a procurement, a distribution group of somebody that can make things oh. and send them out. All right. Also contacted me. Um, they were the first to contact me and said, "Hey, we can do all that stuff for you." And I was like, "Awesome!" But it's like my problem is the step between me and even getting anything to you, right? To make right to even even fabricate. And then there was a there was one person in Seattle who yeah. who was like, "I live here." Yeah, he's I, so, if he's the one I, I'm thinking of, uh, mm-hmm. is that Paul? I, I don't. Remember. I think it's Paul. But he's yes. a, he's a good guy. Well, and, and every single one of them had great uh, resumes and they're all communicating with me, but now I have the challenge of even keeping it all straight because I have someone to hire someone (laughs) to, to keep the applicants straight. Yeah. But the problem is the last time I tried this, I did hire my friend to keep the applicant straight. And then she appointed herself my, uh, assistant and we've covered that already. Yeah. So, but it's very exciting the thing is everybody is way more competent than, than I deserve. Mm. But there's there, I, I feel like there is definitely like some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, at, at least in terms of like, wow. Okay. There are people that can do things. Mm-hmm. Now it's a question of what are those things? And like, how do I compensate people for their talent? Uh, which is, you know, that's a thing that you can figure out. But all by way of saying, Dan, that things are going pretty good. Yeah, it sounds like it. This episode of Roadwork is brought to you by SendPro from Pitney Bowes. SendPro has three times the features of Stamps.com at one-third the price. You can print stamps from your computer. It'll save you time and money. You don't even need any special equipment, and there's no more waiting in line at the post office There's not even any software to install. Everything works right in your web browser. You can compare shipping rates and delivery times between USPS and the other major carriers so that you know you're always getting the best deal when you ship packages. You can even print shipping labels for USPS, UPS, and more and track your shipments all in one place. They have a special deal for Roadwork listeners. Go to pb.com slash roadwork. And when you sign up, You'll get SendPro free for 90 days. You'll get a free 10-pound scale. 
And when your free trial is over, you'll get SendPro for only $5 a month. And that special rate's good for the lifetime of your SendPro subscription. Not uh, $15.99 a month like Stamps.com, just 5 bucks a month. Again, that URL, pb.com slash roadwork. Go check it out, and we sure do appreciate their support. Thanks, Enpro. You know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about mental illness. Okay. Because, you know, I still know a lot of people and have a lot of people. I don't even mean to use the word still. I know a lot of people and I have a lot of people in my life who suffer from depression or anxiety or, you know, a sort of a myriad constellation of mental ailments sure where they're not able to be a full, uh, you know like they're not able to thrive yeah and and it you know it breaks my heart and it was me for 25 years and you know I started taking this bipolar medicine and then I immediately got into a relationship for a year and a half, like immediately. Yeah. I met her within the same week that my medication started working. Mm. And I long, for a long time credited the medication with even the ability to be in a relationship that took the form that this one did. And so for a year and a half, I was really just expending almost all of my energy navigating this relationship that was that was difficult to navigate yeah and so that relationship has been over now for a couple of months and the entire time i was thinking to myself like i feel very different now i'm not always standing on the precipice of a of a infinite hole like i feel like this medicine is really helping me, but I'm still emotionally in a situation that is fraught with peril. And, you know, on an hourly basis, the condition, my conditions on the ground change. And I'm not really sure what my new baseline is. You know, I know that I'm not, I know that the specter of the cold hands of depression don't feel like they're just right over my shoulders like they kind of always have. And I feel liberated by that. Yeah. But I'm also, you know, like bouncing from one thing to the next that, that it's, it's making me feel very unstable. And I don't know, like, what is my new, what's my new normal? Well, so this, my relationship has been over now for a couple of months, maybe even as much as a few months. And I'm finally, like the smoke has cleared. Right. And I'm finally approaching, do you remember the phrase, listen to Prozac or whatever? I think so. I think I've heard that. People used to say that and I was like, huh, listen to Prozac. All right. Well, I don't know what that means, but uh, that was early days of, of Prozac. But I'm still, I'm now able to kind of sit with, where I am relative to this new baseline where I'm not, where I don't have this demon on me all the time. Yeah. And for decades when people would say, are you happy? 
my response was always the same, which was like a, 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 a resigned shrug expressing the fact that I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what happiness meant. I didn't know whether it was like feasible or possible for someone like me to achieve this goal that I couldn't, I couldn't define or even picture like happy, happy. Am I happy? No. I mean, the best I could come up with was no with a question mark (laughs) because I didn't even know what they meant. And when I saw happy people, happy people, I despised them. (laughs) What do you, what do you, what do you mean? Well, because, because happiness seemed to be, it, it seemed to, it seemed to be predicated on a, uh, a blindness to reality. Hmm. And this is a lot of the, the mentality of depression, right? Like you, you believe you deserve your bad feelings, which means that you think reality is creating those bad feelings. Like reality is it and your intelligence and your perceptiveness allow you to see into the world in such a way that depression is the inevitable result oh, Wow, of your of, of your nature, of who you are. It's a gift for you to be able to see the world clearly, but then all you can conclude from that is that life is shit and you are shit. And so people that seemed happy also seemed blind, right. either stupidly blind or worse, willfully blind. And so happiness was like not just elusive, it seemed like a like a a curse you could put on somebody or some maybe something you almost that, didn't want to be happy. Well, not that I didn't want to, it was just that I was incapable of it because of my capacity. Mm. Um and and oh, and I thought it was delightful that people were happy, but I also took that happiness to to include things like wasteful consumption was something that someone would do if they were happy. Um, like sort of ignorant racism in the form of, oh, there are no people of color that are members of our country club. That just must be because there are no people of color who qualify. La-di-da-di-da, tip, you know, like back into the pool. Like simple answers to complicated questions seemed like what happiness looked like. Um. Happiness was the was the element that perpetuated inequality, perpetuated um, the institutions that were – it perpetuated exclusivity. It perpetuated – Donald Trump, right, seems happy or at least he seems – he seems contented or, or – I mean his, his anger is a manifestation of discontent. But he doesn't doubt himself. Right. So all of this now, I still am I still have access to this worldview because I because I, sh- I shared in it, I I steeped in it for so many years. Right. It, it was why I was resistant to going to see psychologists because I felt like they were, in my experience, either like they were practicing their their um, medicine, let's call it. They were practicing it either by rote 
Like they had learned a set of techniques and now they were practicing those techniques right. without really reflecting on things. Or they were psychopharmacologists who were just part of a drug enterprise. Well, or some they, of what you're saying I think is probably true. Well, I mean, and this is the thing about the logic of depression, which is that everything is true. That everything that you are telling yourself is true. Life is shit and you are shit. Let's be honest. You are concluding things uh, based on, you know, a reading of the evidence. And what, what is so, what's so pernicious about depression is that you can sit and very intelligently and rationally walk through the steps of your process, walk through the steps of your thought process and arrive at a place where you you firmly believe like I cannot but conclude this because I can see the conclusion of each little step here and the inevitable result is this. It all makes perfect sense because it's, you know, in a way it is happening. You're using your, your rational brain, but the input is all being filtered through a, an emotional sieve, which is, um, which is coloring and, and pre-processing all of your information. So your, your logical brain is working with what it perceives to be the truth, but it has been colored by an emote, by a, uh, an emotional function machine that you can't look into. It's just input goes into this black box, a red light goes on, and then it comes out the other side modified. And you can't look into the box, and all you can do is deal with the data. And getting into, you know, the and trying to trying to modify or heal what's inside that box without being able to know what it is, is what is so frustrating, it's why people surrender, it's why people collapse, it's, you know, it's, and, and, and what's crazy is that the feelings are real. They're, ac- they're absolutely real. When you feel a blossoming, like, rage ball, <laughs> when you, you know, when you feel a black, uh, a, like a black throbbing sun inside yourself, when you when your <laughs> eyes go when your eyes go blind or when you are just like stuck in tar all those feelings are real the the challenge is understanding that they are also inaccurate mm-hmm. they're real but they are not an accurate portrayal and to to approach to approach reality where you look at, you know, you look out your window and you see your barn and you're like, I see my barn. It doesn't look like a, it's not red today. It's not floating in space. Like I have a pretty solid picture of what I'm looking at and what I'm dealing with. But we cannot peer inside our emotional lives. That's what's so, that's what's so bananas about them. Your emotions are acting equally upon your mind. Anyway, so here I am and I'm and the 
the bipolar medication has changed the nature of my baseline just just somehow by stabilizing the the oscillation and i was reading a thing about it where it said you know there's this kind of bipolar that kind of bipolar this and that and you know one of the dangers one of the most dangerous state is what they described as rapid cycling and i had always read that and sort of skimmed it and read rapid cycling as meaning a kind of thing where you're one day you're you think you're the greatest thing in the world. The next day you think you're a garbage person, you know, back and forth, back and forth, like emotionally unstable. But as I read deeper into it, rapid cycling is like in the course of a year, do you go through a manic phase for a few months, a deeply depressed phase for a few months, another manic phase, like when the, in the course of a year, do you go up and down that fast? four times or, you know, like up two times, down two times. And I was like, wow, I was rapid cycling for a long, a long time. By the end, I was just, I was just cratered. I I didn't have any up at all or barely. But for years I was rapid cycling. I went up and down a couple of times a year, up, way up, down, way down. So anyway, that's all gone. And now the question like, am I happy? It's the first time I've ever considered it under these new conditions. Right. And I have such a pat or such a habit, a lifelong habit of searching myself and and finding a thousand reasons why I why I'm not even like I wouldn't make I wouldn't get a call back for the audition of am I happy because I, <laughs> like I showed up at the back lot and there were 800 guys that looked just like me all reading aloud from the from the script for a bit part on Parks and Rec and you know and I just wasn't even I I I turned around and walked away before I even signed in right and now it's like well shit things are going good <laughs> I don't have, I'm not comparing it against a lifetime of agony and shit. Um, I got a lot of work to do around the house. I've got some pretty good friends. Uh, you know, I had a, I had a good friend here for a few days that, and it's a friend that just makes me happy. Um, and, you know, and that friend is suffering. And what do you do when you're with somebody who is suffering and that hurts you? I just, I know a lot of people in my own life who have not found a path out in the form of like bipolar. We're super lucky. They just, somebody just tripped on a frog in the Amazon rainforest. And it turned out that that frog, if you licked that frog, (laughs) it helped. Right. And when you talk to the doctors and you're like, why? Why? They go, I don't know. We just licked a frog one time and it helped bipolar people. So don't, don't look too deep into it. And and I go, fine, fine. Anti-seizure medication has stabilized me. Fine. I don't want to know anything more. Right. Sure. Because it hasn't, 
Pollyanna'd me. It, I'm not. My eyes aren't spirals. I don't lay around all day, get fat, and have no libido. Like all it did was just take away the chasm. But I talk to other people who are not bipolar, but suffering from some other devastating mental problem. Like I realized, my mom years and years ago said to me, <clears throat> "I am a borderline personality." I have borderline personality. She said this about you or, or about herself? No, she said it about herself. Okay. And I said, borderline personality disorder, mom, those are people that are like waving guns around and threatening to drive their kids into a reservoir. What are you talking about? And she said, no, no, all the description of borderline personality disorder fits me to a T. It's just years and years ago, I decided that I wasn't going to be a slave to this. And so I used my considerable power of like self modification and just pure willpower right to not allow borderline behavior I mean, most people i don't think can do that well this is the thing about it right i mean borderline personality disorder the other name is emotional instability disorder right and <clears throat> when i look at my mom i see a lifetime of struggle but she has a tremendous will and capacity to endure or endure and so i was reading borderline personality disorder the other day and there's no medicine for it all they say is the only thing you can do is train yourself to master it really that's the best result you can hope for. Talk to talk to a psychologist, work on your reactions, uh, start to see your patterns, and work toward, um, like not what, when you feel emotionally unstable. You know, I don't know. Count to ten. Uh, a fidget with a fidget spinner, or. You know, like I think probably traditionally it was like smoke a pack of cigarettes in an hour or I mean, all you're trying to do if you're trying to work with borderline is you're just trying not to sow destruction when you are when you're having a borderline episode and you're trying to collect yourself when you're when you're not. And it feels very similar in description to bipolar because of this sort of nature of it just just sort of the cycling i guess and i realized in reading about it oh first of all yes my mom is borderline and has clamped it with her um with her power not not that it not that it didn't reoccur all the time but just that right. she did you know, she didn't like ever uh, burn the house down. She, you know, she wrestled. But also that I am attracted to borderline personalities and have dated a lot of borderline personalities. And and that is what makes, that's what's made my romantic life so confusing because there is no stable emotional, uh, I am I, I am constantly in situations which, which are un stable emotionally and i was unstable in a different way <laughs> and 
you know, wow, it's uh, it's been wonderful, right? It's been a fun ride. But now I want to help people get to this this place where I am now, which is like I actually took a medication, which I was incredibly suspicious about, right? Suspicious about the premise of it, suspicious about the entire profession and culture de- dedicated to finding and dispensing this medicine. I took it, and I'm so happy about it. And I want to have. I want psychopharmacology to hurry up and find yeah. and lick, lick enough frogs that it can help my other friends and people close to me. Like, but that's the thing about stumbling on something that that helps. You just, you know, you you take some mold, and it turns out that the mold kills bacterial infection, and wow, it transforms the world. Right. It always was there. It just didn't exist until somebody discovered it. And, you know, it's just another, obviously, just another thing where it's like, ah, science. And it's right to be suspicious of science. It's right to be suspicious because history is full of examples where scientists have said, here it is, the explanation. Here is the explanation and here's the solution. And it turns out like, oh, no, right? That's not like science was the basis of phrenology, right? Science is the basis of some kind of flawed science is the basis of eugenics or, or whatever. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, the initial, the initial conclusion of psychiatry was that homosexuality was a reaction to a distant mother, I mean, this was not that long ago. So, so it's, it's, it's right to, to be hesitant to accept the latest development. But, um, I don't know by, by happenstance and largely because I ran for office and thought I'd had a heart attack on the hottest day of the year and went to the doctor for it. And the doctor sent me to another doctor. And that doctor was that woman from New York city who was like, Hey, I didn't come to you, which I thought was the, it's a hilarious line. I'll be telling that story until I'm 95. I'm 95 years old. Somebody will say, how did you discover you were bipolar? And I'll say, oh, there was a woman that told me I didn't come to you. I mean, that's like my dad was telling that story. He just didn't have that story to tell, but I will. So I got lucky, right? And I, and I, and it's, and it's, and it's conceivable that it's conceivable to me now that it is, it is possible to be happy, not just possible to be happy for someone generally, but like possible for me to be happy. I think that's huge. That's a, um, um, an amazing thing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree, and I and uh, and it it is only it's only awful that there are still so many people close to me, and so many people throughout the world, so many people probably listening to this show who suffer from this sort of hyper intellectual 
depression or anxiousness or, you know, something in between them, some part of their processing that is true but inaccurate, that has them mired still. Right. right. Mired and and absolutely without any belief or confidence that there's a path out that is authentic, a path out that doesn't involve them being lost or their perception being, you know, like falsely altered. Well, I think, and that's the biggest thing that, that I think people feel or are worried about is, well, the way that I'm feeling, whether it's, you know, anxiety, which is what I know about more than depression. Right. Uh, or, or whatever the issue is that the person's having is that there's some aspect of it where you're saying that's, but that's me or that's who I am. I don't want to become kind of like what you were talking about before, as far as like, I don't want to have the pinwheels for eyes. You know, I don't, I don't want to be somebody who is just, uh, you know, some automaton, somebody who's just set up, uh, as a, um, you know, I don't want to lose that thing that makes me, me in order to not feel like this, because maybe even feeling like this is part of me, maybe feeling like this is the way that I am. And I don't want to change who I am. And I know people who have taken X, Y, Z and they're different now, or they feel different now, or the thing I liked about them is gone. Because I liked that they were weird, even though it was taking some kind of toll on them to exist as a human being, and they were in hell, like, that was kind of what you li- liked about them, in a way. And I don't want to lose my ability to be me, or to think the way that I want to think, or feel how I want to feel. Right. I mean, was that part of it for you? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the... That was like what my, if what if you you started taking this and you couldn't do music anymore or you couldn't you weren't funny anymore or you weren't a, a writer anymore or whatever the thing is that that it is that you do what if you what if that goes hand in hand with whatever the the disorder you have is and and I think the early days watching my friends early on take the first five generations of serotonin reuptake inhibitors right? Um, or whatever all those Zoloft, Prozac family of things. I mean, there were, I had a couple of friends who were really troubled and not averse to taking mind drugs throughout the early and mid 90s. And some of them really numbed them down. Yeah, their eyes felt far away, and they were like, and the and they their reports were, well, you know, I'm not, they don't feel suicidal, but I sort of, you know, it's fine, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it didn't feel like a cure. It felt like a you know, it felt like a thing that now you needed another drug to counteract the symptoms. And I know I knew people that were on a cocktail of drugs to solve these 
problems. And, and one friend in particular, in some ways, one of my oldest friends in the world who suffered mightily as a teenager and who went through alcohol and drugs with me. And she was the person who was my, she was the one who stood there with a net when I stopped doing drugs. Mm. She had quit six months before and she was there waiting for me when I kind of walked out of the, walked through the doorway, <clears throat> head still full of fuzz, having made a decision, but unclear how to follow through on that decision. Like I was done getting high. I, I knew that I wanted that. And I had made the decision. And I had a lot of firmness about it, partly because I, I'm my mother's son but also because <clears throat> the the film of my life, and I don't mean like the the uh, the greasy coating, but I mean the the uh, telenova mm. of my future was revealed to me, and I could just see there were I could see inevitabilities. There just wasn't a um, there wasn't a solution. And so I was done. But, of course, you're standing there. You're on very shaky legs. And she was the one that took me by the hand and said, let's get you a toothbrush. <laughs> and, you know, she saved my bacon. But she, in getting sober, did not solve her mental problems any more than I did. Right. And so <clears throat> post leaving drugs behind she she did kind of go into the psychopharmacology and there was a lot of questions there were a lot of questions between the two of us <clears throat> about whether or not that qualified as being on drugs right sure she 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 was taking drugs she was on them they were changing her but her she was using them in an attempt to take another step toward mental health, but they didn't, they ultimately didn't help. And I watched that process and worried about her and, and stood on the other side of it and said, this is not the path for me. I do not want to go through this, uh, experimentation and partly because I wasn't tormented the same way that she was, right? I've never felt suicidal. And she did. And she had a lot of fear, which, you know, my fear was more general. I didn't, I didn't walk around seized with fear. It was, it was much more like seized, with, seized by doom. Anyway, her experiments continued for decades, always trying something new, always seeking some cocktail of drugs that was going to uh, help. And in her 40s, she started to descend into paranoia and, and she started to lose what had what – had, always been a firm but shaky grip on 
like general reality. Really? And it was, you know, it was heartbreaking for us both to watch happen in your mid forties. It seems, it seemed to me like I'm in my mid forties. Come on. This is something I should have grown out of. Right. Sure. And it was why Robin Williams's suicide affected me so profoundly. And it did my friend too. And I, because it because it was like, oh, wait a minute, like he had the same thing that we have and he was rich and famous and beloved and had resources across a wide spectrum and could turn to anyone. And that day that he killed himself was not the worst day in his life by far. He'd had a thousand worst days. It was just the day that he gave up finally. And that put a cold fear in me and I think in my friend too because it's like we both lived in this, you know, obviously not immediately adjacent to Robin Williams, but a lot of friends that are, I mean, I'm, I know Bobcat Goldthwait and he was one of Robin Williams's closest friends. So it's like we're, we were only a, a kiss away right. in that orbit. And, and, and more importantly, like he did a profoundly better version, but still like a job similar to the jobs that we aspire to. Sure. So that was part of the shock, right? Um, that, that propelled me ultimately to sit in that doctor's office and go, you know what? Okay. Fuck, fuck you and fuck everything. But yeah, all right, sure. I'll take your stupid thing. I'll sure. Fine. I'll take it. Like, what am I? Why, why am I so proud? <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, my friend got uh, it, life got harder and harder. And at the age of 46 years old, she hung herself. Oh, my God. After five months prior to that, deciding that I was now her enemy. Really? In addition to her parents and every, you know, everyone else, I was now also her enemy. Why? For reasons unclear. I had not, she was in love with my daughter. I had somehow not made it, you know, I hadn't re replied to a text or something, but she perceived that to be that I was denying her access to my daughter who was who she thought was going to save her, you know, like knowing my daughter being her aunt was something that was important to her. And I was denying it to her. And of course I wasn't, I didn't even know. I couldn't recall the text I hadn't replied to, but I mean, you know, come on, I'm, I don't reply to all texts, but this was a key one. But I mean, I, I, she, she had been doing this, to her parents for years and was doing it to a great number of people. And she ended up living in her car with her dog and all very, what seems like very rapidly to me ended up killing herself at 46. Wow. And I can say her name, her name was Karen corn and her mother has that's corn with a K. Her mother has started a, um, started program here in Seattle, which provides art supplies and art space to homeless people or people who are 
transitioning or, you know, in and out of street. And it's called the Karen Corn Project. And it's like a, a really simple desire to, you know, it's in the basement of a church on Lower Queen Anne. It has a, a group of people that support it. And anyone can go there. You don't have to be homeless. Anyone can go there and there are tables and art supplies and food and coffee. And you can just sit and and express yourself through art right. as long as you want. And that's in honor of Karen and, in, and you know, it's it sort of reflecting the fact that Karen ended up homeless and without any, there just wasn't any state-sponsored or city-sponsored program that she any more qualified for. There was, she just had no resources at the end. And those of us that were closest to her, she wouldn't let us close. Um. And she was, you know, she was like in a full on episode toward the end. I mean, the last time I saw her, she had come out and it was just pure fortune that I was, I walked into a coffee shop and she was sitting out front at a table and I, with her dog and I was like, Karen. And she got up and said, I'm sorry. I know you're not my enemy. I'm sorry. I did that. You know, I feel a lot better now. I hope that we can hang out and yeah. at least you had that well and i you know and i had an appointment that i had to go to and i was like karen it's so wonderful to see you etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know like i do want to hang out i do want you to be an aunt to my daughter like we just have to we just have to navigate you know where you are now and right. you know and what what i should have said was you can come live with me but she killed herself like two days later the next day or two days later. It's yeah. unclear because she didn't, it wasn't clear when they found her. Uh, and, you know, and then uh, what happened with Chris Cornell was in a similar vein of right. like, what the, say what? Like, where did that come from? And, and that was not, um, it wasn't clear that, it wasn't clear to the outside world that any of that was going on with him and he had a relationship, you know, with his wife where it was, where it was internal that was happening in a closed system. And I'm sure the people closest to him knew, but he was also trying to, you know, find a medication that worked and unfortunately got into just drugs. Right. And, and they were prescribed for him by somebody as an anti-anxiety medicine, which, you know, it's like, Okay, but it but what you're giving him is like opiates or addict you know addictive tranquilizers. So I don't know, you know I I think about this stuff a lot and you want to like I want to try and help uh, the people that are close to me as much as I can, but my god, it's I was resistant to help, Dan. What could what could someone have done or said to you that would have, if anything, like made you be have been receptive to it? Was there anything you could have heard? You know what I mean? Like, was there something that someone could have said that would have made you try it sooner? No, that's 
That's the thing, right? Like you, there was nothing that would have made you go to a therapist or try, you know, a a medicine if you're not on that page already. Right. That, I mean, they, they said everything, the people, all the different people, um, said all the things that didn't make sense to me now or didn't make sense to me then. And then one day and you know, and it's, and it's awful to say like hit bottom because the problem with mental problems, you know, like depression and, and mental illness is that bottom is not the same as, as like, I'm done drinking, mm-hmm. you know, it's like bottom is often suicide mm. or something, you know, or something worse. I mean, bottom can often be an incident of domestic violence where, where other people die. Um, bottom can be a situation where like a lot of people die because the false reality, the emotional, the, you know, the, the white hot bloom inside of a person can, can uh, utterly seize control and make them irrational. Uh, and bottom can also be very, very, very slow and invisible where you just gradually, gradually close the curtains more and more until no one sees you again. And you are, uh, you're bedridden or you are homebound or you are, you know, you become physically disabled by virtue of, you know, a, a host of maladies, mental and otherwise. Like there's just, there's no way to just say like, well, one day they'll hit bottom and then they'll seek help because it's too, uh, it's just too multifaceted and I guess the reason that I talk about it is that I have had people say in reaction to things I've said before that it gave them a different picture from inside where they were because it's not it's not common for people who have been there to speak about it in language, I think that people who are there can hear and go, huh, huh. Right. Like this is someone who's kind of maybe experiencing some of what I'm experiencing. Yeah. And, and also like, especially now, right now, I'm not, I think to people who have been listening to us talk for a long time, Mm -hmm. I'm, I think evidently, unchanged in, in in important ways i'm not misfiring i'm not um i'm uh, it has not changed my thinking right you're not like all of a sudden you don't tell interesting stories anymore or you know what i'm saying like yeah that's- right it it didn't it, no element of i think of my wit has been, uh, edged. There's no, you know, there's no dulling of the sharpness. Right. And that should hopefully to people who are listening and going, well, it's all right for you. 
can hear that and say, okay, right. Um, because, it, because that Im- some information has to penetrate into that function box to say, you know, to say at least for whatever, to, to, to get in there just enough to say, this is not, this is real, but not accurate. And that alone can be a toehold that allows you to say, okay, maybe I need to insert another line of code here. Right. As I, as I walk myself through this progression, that seems very clear and that arrives at this inescapable conclusion for me every time that life is shit and I am shit. There needs to be one more line in there that says, wait a minute, is it possible that I am, that there is an unreliable narrator in this chain that I cannot see, Mm. that I cannot identify by name because it is pre-processing things according to a selective filter. And that alone is enough. You don't have to know what it is. You don't have to have a name for it. You don't have to, or, you know, you can call it Wells troll or whatever, but you don't have to, you don't have to know what that process is to know that it's happening, or at least to, to acknowledge the possibility that it's happening. And that should sow enough doubt in your conclusion that you don't just wallow in what you have, uh, what you imagine is a certitude that you say, maybe not (laughs) which is maybe the best you can hope for maybe not and you know and that can propel you either to go find professional help or go sit out in the sun and look at the birds and say hmm these birds can't be shit also although of course they can right i mean birds end up being raccoon shit or whatever <laughs> eventually. Right. But you know what I mean? Like there is, there is order that is positive. There are, there are things to grasp. And more importantly, it isn't evidence. There isn't evidence in the world that can disprove what that function box is telling you. It isn't. And that's the, that's the challenge. You're always looking for, well, show me something in the world that can counteract this invisible process. And that isn't how it works. You, you have to just start disallowing that physical process without knowing what it is and, and not go out and say, well, you know, everything is shit anyway. The sky is full of smoke and, the, and we're headed to catastrophe and all my friends are lame. <laughs> like it, it, it isn't that those things aren't related, right? You're, all those things that you're looking for in the proof are already pre-processed by the box. I mean, it sounds like it's a really hard situation for a lot of people. And I know that there was one point when, uh, when I was like in therapy and the, the I, I went to, I guess a, a therapist as opposed to a psychiatrist, but she was partnered with a psychiatrist. So I guess after she'd seen me for a little while, She's like, you know, um, you, you might benefit from, you know, something like a, like a Prozac. 
And she had me meet with the psychiatrist who said, yeah, well, you know, let me, let me write you out a prescription for it and see how it does for you. Yeah. Um, but I remember thinking, you know, that, and again, it, it, it wasn't depression for me. It was anxiety, generalized anxiety disorders, what they called it. And so for me, there was, there was this concern of, you know, I don't, I don't, like Prozac, like it changes who you are, you know, like it changes your personality. And I don't really want that. But there was also this philosophy, this belief that I had at the time where I was saying to myself, you know, maybe, maybe there's more that I can do on my own without having to, maybe for lack of a better word, resort to, using some kind of pharmaceutical for it. Like maybe there's something that I can do that will, you know, that I haven't tried yet. Maybe there's something that would help, but that if it doesn't work, that yeah, I'll I'll give this thing a try and see what it can do for me. And I think for a lot of people, there is that sort of that hesitation saying, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to try this one more thing. And a lot of the thing times, the one more thing doesn't, doesn't seem to work. And I think a lot of the time, maybe the medicine doesn't work too. The pharmaceutical thing doesn't, doesn't work as well. So I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's easy. I don't think it's easy for people. It's not easy for people. No. So I, you know, I, I, I wound up not getting on it, but I learned through the experience that it it probably would have been, it probably would have helped me and it probably would have been fine. And I think there's, uh, there's a lot of people who are hesitant to try it because of those fears. It's going to change me or I'll get addicted to it. I'll never be able to stop taking it. Yeah. I don't, I, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to be able to only take it for a month or six months. I'll have to take it forever. I don't want that. Yeah. I didn't want that either until I started taking this thing that worked. And now I'm like, fuck, I'll take this forever. Right. My work, right. my I mean, work. Right. Maybe that's, maybe that's <laughs> not so bad, you know? I just keep worrying that what they say is, well, it doesn't lose its efficacy and like you're not going to build up a tolerance for it. Right. And if it stabilizes you, then that's who you are and that's where you'll remain. And I'm terrified, not terrified, but I'm concerned that A, all these people did was lick a frog and say, yeah, seems to go. Let's give it to people. Mm-hmm. I, there's not enough. It hasn't been around long enough to know what the results are when you take it for 40 years. Um, but it doesn't seem to like, I have not upped my dose. It doesn't seem to wear off. And I do feel the same every day. I don't, I mean, I, I don't mean the same, like, like there's no change in my mood up and down because there still is. It just feels like it's bearable. Right. There are still times when I feel like all my friends are against me, 
Um, and there are still times when I, in the middle of the night, send emails that I wish I could take back. And I did not become a perfect boyfriend. Jesus. <laughs> not within a thousand miles of a perfect boyfriend. In fact, I realized something that I'd known for a long time, but hadn't ever really comfortably sat upon the, upon that's terrible, <laughs> terrible language, <laughs> terrible language and terrible grammar. But, um, which was like, I'm a terrible boyfriend. I, that's just what I am. I'm a terrible boyfriend. I'm not ashamed of it because I can't dunk a basketball either. And being able to dunk a basketball is a result of a lot of physical conditioning and practice. But there are plenty of people with great physical conditioning who have been practicing for decades and can't dunk a basketball. It's a kind of – it's a talent. And there are people who have a talent and a nature and a, and a, and a, ton, of th- a ton of reasons why they are great boyfriends. And they seek to be boyfriend or husband and they, they have practiced being boyfriend in order to be husband. Right. And they're amazing at it. And the, you know, I did not try to be boyfriend in order to get good at husband. I didn't really even try to be boyfriend. Um, but when I was boyfriend, I was trying to accomplish something else than just be good boyfriend. And now at 48 years old, I just recognize I like, being good boyfriend is the same as dunking basketball. And it's not that I'm a bad boyfriend in any of the, you know, it's not that I'm a cheater. It's not that I'm a, a, uh, like I'm not certainly not abusive. I'm not, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a bad boyfriend. I'm a little bit dark and pouty. I'm a little bit, uh, I'm a lot a bit just a loner introvert and I love people. I love being with people. I love girls. Um, my, you know, I love being best friends with girls. I love being with girls. I just am terrible at being a boyfriend. And that is, that's the source of a lot of disappointment or a lot of just sort of like, because ladies love a project and I appear to be a fantastic project. (laughs) Right. Sure. I really do (laughs) to everyone out there. It's just like, Oh my God, let me just get a hold of that raw material and turn him (laughs) into something good. Right. But I I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a terrible project. Uh, and so a lot of that is, is now increasingly just, and, and again, as a result of, having addressed that mysterious function machine, which is still a mystery to me, still absolutely in the chain and operative, but, but, and still a mystery, but just not a decisive one. I've been lately just saying like, Oh, right. I'm a bad boyfriend. I cannot dunk a basketball. I, uh, you know, I will never be good at hockey and I am never going to be a husband. And to measure my success in life against it 
and to interact with other people who believe just as extroverts believe that all introverts need to do is become more extroverted and they'll be happy. (laughs) There are a lot of people out there who want to tell me and who consistently try to tell me that all I haven't, you know, the only thing missing is I haven't met the right person yet. Uh, I hear that so much, Dan. Oh, you just haven't met the right person yet. I hear that from people close to me. I hear that from people far away from me. I hear that from people on, you know, like the first week I meet them and I hear it from people that I've known for 25 years and it just isn't true. It isn't true that I haven't met the right person. Um, that's an example of, of people who are either good at, good at being husbands and wives who think that everybody can be slash should be or a lot of people who probably aren't good at being husbands and wives, but good enough that they can fake it and are, you know, are really trying to convert other people to the same way of thinking in order to kind of validate their own decisions. Mm. I mean, there are a lot of people who are bad at being in relationships, but are, are gutting it out and they kind of, they want that decision validated by other people who are bad at relationships also (laughs) gutting it out (laughs) alongside them so that they don't feel like they got sold a bill of goods or that they are, you know, they're suffering alone. And, oh, damn, the, the. Because this is something I've known about myself for 30 years. And I always saw it as this, as a sort of bicameral world where you either find a way to suck it up and be a husband, or you are consigned to a life of loneliness and, and aloneness. And it just isn't like that at all. It's just not even related. That just doesn't exist. It is, the world is not built around that human sexuality isn't built around it. And, you know, I don't want to be married and cheat on somebody that doesn't suit me. Although it does suit other people. It just doesn't suit me. I don't like to, I don't like to make false promises, but, but it, but that is actually about, I have a good friend who's like, look, man, I can't really get excited about somebody unless I know I'm betraying somebody else. And it's like, well, that's a kind of sexuality, right? That is a version of the, the, the game. And there are a lot of people that are, that are playing that game. And I think that is also a, that's also a thing that people get into. Like I fall in love with, uh, borderline personality disorder people for a long time. I didn't know it, but now I do. And I don't think it's going to stop me. I don't think that I'm going to recognize, uh, borderline personalities and say, Oh, you're a problem for me. I think I'm going to recognize them now and, and be like, hello, sister. 